This is Amy Hall. Welcome to the Hashtag STR Ask podcast. With me today is not Greg Kokel. We have a special guest today. Alan Schleeman will be joining us, and he will be answering your questions. Hello, Alan. <laughs> hey, my first time on the show. I'm so excited. Oh, no, wait, it's not. Never mind. <laughs> Far from your first time on the show. Okay, let's get going. Um, here's a question from Zach Gordon. Mm-hmm. Friend rejects evidence for resurrection based on disciples dying for their claims because he says that they simply had the altruistic intent of spreading the positivity of the Christian message, not because Jesus actually rose again. How should I counter this? Well, I guess I find it a little bit hard to believe that anybody would, well, I shouldn't say it's hard to believe that somebody would die for an altruistic cause. I mean, of course, people do. Um, but uh, it's it's weird to suggest that the disciples died for this altruistic cause of just, what is it he say? Uh, pushing, pos- pu- pushing the positivity of the Christian message. Right. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm not sure what the positivity of the Christian message is. If that's a reference to the actual gospel, then... I would say, well, no, it's actually quite believable that somebody would die for the gospel because of what it is. But to suggest that there—it sounds like what the person's asking, though, is, well, they were just advancing some sort of social justice Christian positive message, and the disciples were willing to die for that. And what's the big—you know, that that, that could happen. But again, it just doesn't seem plausible to me that one person would die for some sort of general positive message, let alone a dozen people— would die for some sort of just general positive message. I mean, you know, the, the thing that we often comment about the death of the disciples is that it's a much different kind of death or martyrdom than if, say, for example, um, some uh, Muslims were to die for their faith, you know, today. You know, because the difference between, say, Muslims who are dying for their faith um, and so and the disciples— who died for their faith, is that in the case of, for example, Muslims, um, these were people who were not in a position to know whether the claims about Islam were fabricated or not. Okay, I mean, they believe they're true, but they weren't the ones who invented Islam, who fabricated Islam, who, who created the story about Islam. Whereas with the disciples, these are the people who allegedly invented the claims about Christ his death, his resurrection, the empty tomb, and so his appearance before them. And so they were actually in a position to know whether the claims are true or false. So when someone comes to them and says, okay, come on, be honest. Did this really happen? Did Christ really appear to you? They say, yeah, he did. And then they put a knife to their neck and say, come on, did it really happen? They'll be the first to be like, no, 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 it didn't happen. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm joking. I made it up, right? So when someone is presented with a situation where their life's in jeopardy unless they confess that they made up a lie. They're most likely going to just say, oh, yeah, no, no, I made it up, right? But in the case of the disciples, these people were the ones who allegedly invented the lie and then were persecuted and then eventually martyred. You'd think that if they were just making it up, they would have you know, confessed right away. And so this is why I, it's hard for me to believe that Really, what's going on here is that these guys were just advancing some sort of positive message, and they were dying for that positive message. I mean, maybe one person might do that, maybe because they're crazy, but 12? It seems unlikely. So I think uh, the whole premise of the uh, the question seems to be mm-hmm. um, kind of incredible, in my opinion. 
I think what I would probably do if this came up for me is the first thing I would ask is you're saying, you know, you're saying that they died to spread, quote, the positivity of the Christian message. I think the first thing I would ask would be, what is your understanding of what the Christian message is? Mm-hmm. Because I think you've hit it the nail on their head on the head. I think that that they're thinking of it as some sort of social justice, love mm-hmm. your neighbor mm-hmm. message. Mm-hmm. When in actuality, the whole message is Jesus rose from the dead. Right. That is the message. Right. So, um, and then after I asked them that and clarified what the message is, I'd probably take them to First Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. where Paul says, if this isn't true, then you're most to be pitied. <laughs> right, right. So there, there was an understanding among them that if this didn't actually happen, literally happen, then there's no point to it. Right. So if there's no point to it, if it didn't happen, then what message would they be promoting? Yeah. What, what, what would they have been promoting? Yeah. And, and yeah, why would that be worth dying for? Yeah. Some, some positive message. You know? Yeah. But I, yeah, I'd just be really curious what they think that positive message sure. is. Yeah. Because there are a lot better ways to argue about, argue for loving your neighbor than to say that Jesus rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, that actually accomplished a particular thing, right. at, you know, saving people from their sins. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Thanks, Alan. Yeah. The second question comes from Mike, and he says, as a teacher in an Australian public school, how should I put a stone in the shoe of my students without getting preachy? Saying anything that promotes the gospel in Aussie public schools is illegal for teachers. Mm. And we love hearing from Ozzy. So all of you out there, <laughs> shout out to all of you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was, uh, I was just there uh, earlier this year. That was great. Um, and perhaps we'll be going back as well soon. Um, so, yeah, this is, a, this is a tough question because, of course, you're limited by what your employer says you can, you can and cannot say. And, of course, um, being <clears throat> explicit about the gospel or talking about that from the position of a teacher is probably forbidden, it sounds like, and it indeed is even in the United States for the most part. So I guess the best way to put a stone in their shoe is actually just to look back at what STR has taught um, throughout its entire history, and that is using the Columbo tactic, the power of questions. So if I was in that situation, I would be very, uh, I'd be looking for opportunities to ask very intentional questions that cause people to think about their own views and perhaps reconsider them. Because as I often teach, um, or I've, as I often talk about when I teach on tactics, um, you can make your point about some idea without ever stating your case if you can learn how to use questions powerfully. In fact, I just pulled up, um, this is the uh, the solid ground card that we use to, to promote uh, or have people sign up for solid ground. And attached to that little sign-up form is a little uh, blue laminated Columbo Tactics summary card. And in the and on the summary card, there's three key questions, right? The first one's, what do you mean by that? The second is, how did you come to that conclusion? And the third one is, can you clear this up for me? And these are questions that ask, you know, what a person believes, why a person believes it. And then the third question is more about, you know, asking a question that might exploit a weakness in a person's view. And so I would say to this teacher, man, learn these Columbo questions and practice using them because oftentimes you can ask a person a question and by asking them a question about their own views, about what their view is or why they believe it, as they answer the question out loud, oftentimes it causes them to reconsider their own thoughts or ideas about a subject 
or often when they communicate it out loud, it doesn't sound as convincing or as good as if they're just thinking about it in their own mind. And this is one of the ways I think that they can put a stone in a person's shoe is by simply asking them questions and having them kind of think through the answer to those questions as they answer them out loud. So I think that's probably one of the easiest ways to do it. That That's a great. Uh, can you talk a little bit also, because I think taking the roof off, would also that tactic is also really helpful. I mean, that's basically yeah. what you're saying, but yeah, if you want right, to explain right, right. what that is. Yeah. So taking the roof off is simply um, the logical principle that's taught in logic class called reductio ad absurdum. And the idea with this view is simply, or with this with this tactic, is that you take someone's view and you just say, "All right, let's just accept what you're saying for the for the sake of argument. Let's just agree that what you're saying is true, just for the sake of argument." And then you ask in your mind first, "What logically follows if that person's view is true?" And so you sort of, as Greg says, take that idea for a test drive, see what logically leads from that view. And if it leads to some absurdity, some ridiculous conclusion, then you can um, show that their rationale that led to the absurdity is also mistaken. You know, And so you can ask a Columbo question that shows the absurdity of their view. Um, actually, Jesus did this in uh, the place where he's, um, he, he, he heals a demon-possessed man. People say, well, he's Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, and that's the reason why he's um, able to cast out demons. And then Jesus takes the roof off with their particular um, claim, he shows the absurdity of their view by saying, wait a minute, if I'm, G- if I'm Beelzebub, the rule of the demons, and I'm casting out other demons, that means, I'm, that means Satan's kingdom is divided against himself, and therefore his kingdom would be destroyed. But Satan's kingdom is not destroyed. It's perfectly fine. So therefore, he showed the absurdity of their rationale, how it leads to this ridiculous view, to demonstrate that their rationale or their claim that he's Beelzebub mm-hmm. is also mistaken. So so Jesus even, you know, went to our website, learned this tactic, and used it with the fair. With the, I'm just kidding. It was Peter who went to our website. But. No. So, anyways, that's that's reductio ad absurdum. So, yeah, if you can learn that tactic as well, that is incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. You don't even have to necessarily come out and say you're a Christian or advocate for Christian views. In many of the instances, in where you're just using questions mm-hmm. to ask people what they believe, why they believe them, or to expose a weakness in their view using the taking the roof off tactic, as you just mentioned. I think one other thing you could introduce to them is, without actually promoting Christianity, is the idea that there is truth about spiritual reality. Just start them thinking about spiritual things as being objective, Mm -hmm. right or wrong, Mm -hmm. so that they can then start to think about it in those terms. Because so much um, thinking today about religion is true for me, but not true for you, that it's all relative and it's whatever you feel like. But if you can also kind of get people thinking critically about religious claims, Mm -hmm. which I think maybe people are more open to that when it comes to Christianity, but um, because people are fine with criticizing Christianity for some reason. (laughs) But, But if you can talk about those things in terms of true and false... So mm-hmm. that they start thinking about it that way. That will also give them a head start to mm. answering questions for themselves. Sure, sure. Yeah, because people will definitely believe that knowledge can only be gained in sort of the hard sciences, you know, physics and chemistry. But they think everything else is just all relative. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a premise that many people are operating on. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next question, um, I think 
many people will benefit from this one. (laughs) It comes from Charles Claxton. And he says, I moved to a new city. How does one avoid being excessively critical of a pastor when searching for a new church home? (laughs) Yeah, well, well, that that actually um, speaks to me in a very personal way because this is how I've experienced my own search as I've, um, you know, gone church shopping at different times in my life, um, especially after having gone to Biola and studying, you know, at a seminary and learning certain things. All of a sudden I feel like, wow, I have all this knowledge. And then when you go and hear a pastor preach, you're like, oh, man, you know, he, he got that part wrong or, you know, that's taken out of context. And you're like, this is a horrible church. I'm not going to go there. So I, I can definitely relate to this. And, um, man, I, I'd say number one, I had to, and I'll just speak personally here, I had to really check my heart with this because I began to develop a sense of inappropriate um, pride, really, in my own thinking about that, oh, I'm, I know now what hermeneutics is about. I know about context and history and genre, and clearly this pastor hasn't gotten it right. And so I would first say, man, you got to just check yourself to see, you know, is there any part of you in which you're just being inordinately prideful and, and, and therefore sinful in that. Uh, and to maybe just say, you know what, let me just try to listen a little bit more and be a little bit less critical. Because I think that was something that was driving me to have a problem uh, with, with the pastors that I heard. And by the way, before I say anything else, I would just say, if the pastor, by the way, is teaching falsehood, okay, <laughs> then, then this, doesn't, this doesn't apply, okay? So if the, pers- if the pastor's teaching falsehood, he's not teaching scripture— then by all means, it's appropriate to be critical and move on to a different church, of course. But I'm just assuming that here the pastor is a, a, a well-intentioned you know, preacher. He's trying to preach the, the Word of God. He's being generally faithful to Scripture. Okay, So number one, I think check your own sort of um, pride with that. Um, number two, I think you have to recognize that um, all pastors and indeed all churches are really a package deal. And that is, yeah, they, they might get some things wrong. And I suppose you could be critical about it, or there could be some aspects of the church that you don't like, their worship style, the color of the carpet, whatever. But, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. I mean, there's no perfect church. There's no perfect pastor. And you're going to have to, at some point, assess the, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of saying, well, man, this pastor's, you know, he's fairly solid. The, the teaching's pretty good. You know, the kids' program's decent. And, but I don't like this, this, and this about the church. But you got to take it as a package and consider, well, look, every church is going to have its pros and cons. And you got to have to weigh that and decide, you know, whether, um, you know, you can attend this church or not. You know? mm-hmm. So that would be the second thing I'd, I'd, I'd say is just um, um, realizing that's, that's the way reality is. Yeah, don't be utopian about your ideas of what church will be like mm-hmm. because there is no utopian church. Yeah. There's always going to be something that could be better. So what are you going to focus on? Right. You have to you have to decide. Yeah. I also think I mean I, just going by my own self. Yeah, sure. I also think people tend to mellow out over time when they realize this. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times after people have gone to seminary or they've learned a lot, at the beginning they can be really dogmatic about yeah. the things they've learned. But then you also realize you know, I could be wrong about these things too. I'm not yeah. necessarily yeah, right. <laughs> I don't actually know as much as I thought I knew. Yeah. So I think in time you you kind of mellow out yeah. just on your own. Yeah. I know that happened to me for sure. Yeah, yeah. after I came out of seminary I was like, "Woohoo, I'm ready to knock down any pastor who says anything wrong, you know." And, then, <laughs> and I'm, now I'm kind of like, "Well, whatever. I mean, he's a human being just like me and you know, I make mistakes all the time too." So. Yeah. I mean, and also you 
you have to decide what's important to you because there there are different you know there's music there's fellowship there's mm-hmm. preaching there's um just liturgy there's all sorts of different things and you just kind of have to pick out what is most important to you um is it is it close fellowship in small groups mm-hmm. is it the the pastor's message is it a, having a pastor who will pastor you who will look mm-hmm. after you and 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 have a relationship with you and mentor mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. and you just have to figure out what your priorities are. i guess this is kind of like getting married you're never going to find a perfect yeah. person either right you have to figure out what your priorities are right and then kind of let the other stuff go yeah it's a package deal and like you said don't expect a utopian church yeah. And if you find one, they say, don't join it, right? Because you'll ruin it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One more question for you, Alan. Okay. This one comes from, I need to go fishing. <laughs> That's probably for Greg then. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. So his question is, Genesis tells us that God made two great lights. How can this be when there are billions of suns in space? Okay, so... Maybe it's just me. I, I, to me, this seems like a fairly straightforward question, although maybe I'm missing something. Um, so this is Genesis 1. Um, so Genesis 1, 16, although the context would probably start in verse 14. So God's creating the universe, he's creating the world. Then in verse, I'm sorry, verse 14, he says, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And so it was. And then verse 16 says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the night. And he made the stars also. So to me, it sounds like, again, I don't know, This maybe this just seems like too simple of an answer, but... That the two greater, the, the the greater and the lesser lights are the sun that appears during the day, and the moon that appears at the night, and not the billions of stars that that's, this question is referring to. After all, verse sixteen says he created the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, and then he also made the stars also. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like those are different things. Now I know the sun is a star, but I think the point that's being clearly made here is that there is a light entering the day and one at night one's the sun one's the moon and the stars are other things yeah and and that's from our perspective too he made those lights for us specifically to be for us and to give us light right but but i think the answer is with questions like this if you read the passage yeah again it says right there it refers to the other stars sure if you yeah and if you go back to and if you keep going to verse 17 it gives even more context well, we're out of time. Okay. Alan, thank you so much yeah, for sure. joining us and filling in for Greg today. No problem. And everyone else, please send us your questions on Twitter with the hashtag STRask. This is Amy Hall and Alan Schleeman for Stand to Reason.